Hello, everyone. Can you hear me? Yes, indeed. Okay. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining today's uh, webinar. We are glad to see everyone. We thank God for such a good day. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on wherever you are joining us from. It's a good day and we are sure we are going to have a great time together today. I'll just open with a quick word of prayer and John, you take over and uh, move straight to the next um, agenda. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for this time that we are spending together. Thank you for bringing us from all over the world to participate in today's webinar. Thank you for our speaker today. Thank you for the topic. Thank you for the time we'll be spending together. Father, we pray that as we listen, we will hear you speak directly to us and the words that you speak will do us good. We will not just be hearers alone, but also we'll make up our minds to be the doers of your word so that our lives will be the better for it and our relationship with you and with our fellow human beings will be better thank you father for answers for it's in jesus mighty name we have prayed amen, amen. over to you john thank you it's such a pleasure to introduce bill crowder to our webinar audience today bill is a much loved staff member at our daily bread ministries after more than 20 years in the pastorate, Father God brought him to this special ministry, and we are excited to have him as part of the team. Anyone who's been reading our daily bread over the years will know much about Brother Bill. I have copies of Bill's devotionals going back to 2006, and I've tracked something in the region of 350 of his devotional messages across 16 years. Many insights of his ministry and family have peeped through his messages, and here are a few examples of real-life illustrations that he has used in sharing God's word. One of them is that when he was in college as a young Christian, a mentor by the name of Dave Randlett made an impact on Bill, and he later wrote, because of him, my life will never be the same. During World War II, Bill's father-in-law spent 18 months in a prison of war camp where loudspeakers often played music, including a song entitled Lily Marlene. Samad gave him hope, and years later, he gave that name to his only daughter, Bill's wife, Marlene. Bill met Marlene in college, where she was working on a degree in elementary education, working with children. And Bill saw instantly that Marlene loved children. Bill and Marlene now have five children and several grandchildren. After the fall of communism, Bill taught Russian pastors at the Moscow Bible Institute. Most of those pastors had never had formal training. Bill still spends much of his time in a Bible teaching ministry for Christian leaders all around the world. 
Those parents taught him to love all sorts of music from country to classical. So visiting the Moscow Conservatory to hear Tchaikovsky was a high point experience. That reminded me of my own joy seeing Handel's Messiah at the Royal Albert in London. Nothing equals that. Bill has visited South Africa and I've had the privilege of hearing him speak at a conference in Pretoria and he preached at my home church in Johannesburg North. Bill has also written numerous Discovery Series booklets and he has published several books, titles such as Let's Talk, Why Prayer Matters, a book on Windows on Easter and another on Windows on Christmas, and Overcoming Life's Challenges, and Living with Courage in a Changing World, and Trusting God in Hard Times. One of Bill's books is entitled Compassionate Heart. What does it mean to love like God? And with that, I'm going to hand you back to Bill because that's exactly what our brother will be sharing with us today. So thank you, brother. It's over to you. And may Father God anoint your lips. Thank you, John. That's very kind. And uh, I can only imagine what it must have been to experience Handel's Messiah at the Royal Albert. It's a magnificent venue for sure. Um, thank you all for joining us today, whether it's morning, afternoon, evening for you. We're glad that you were willing to carve out this time to spend with us as we look at the scriptures together on this final Friday in the month of February. And uh, <clears throat> for reasons largely, I think, because of Valentine's Day being February 14th, much of the time in the month of February, we think about or talk about the subject of love, and that's what we're going to do here today. Uh, we're going to talk about the subject of love, but not as it has to do with romance or marriage or whatever, but love as Jesus talked about it on a, what I would say, a higher level. And, and what Jesus does is he sets a high bar for us to strive for, and we're going to see what that is. But to kind of get started, <clears throat> many of you are young enough that you've lived your entire life surrounded by technology. That wasn't the case when I was young. When I was young, um, a telephone was a thing that hung on the wall in the kitchen, and it had a cord, and, and you had to dial the numbers and things of that nature. Uh, it's a very different world today with all the technology, but one of the differences is that when I was young, <clears throat> satellite technology was just being developed. I remember as a boy of, I think, seven, when Russia launched the first Sputnik satellite um, and how that shook people to think that there were things in space watching us. Very interesting. Well, back in 1967, in the early days of satellite technology, a decision was made to use that satellite technology to beam a broadcast all around the world at the same time. It was going to be called Our World. That was the name of the broadcast. And different countries around the world were asked to contribute something to the program that would kind of speak to their own culture, their own uh, background and national ethos. And um, England, the UK, uh, asked the Beatles, who were kind of at the height of their musical powers at that moment, uh, to do a song. And John Lennon wrote a special song for that Our World broadcast. And it was the very familiar song from which we get the title for our webinar, All You Need Is Love. 
All you need is love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. And uh, that became one of the most enduring Beatles songs. And they performed it live with an orchestra and a bunch of their friends sitting around singing with them uh, on this global, first ever global satellite television program. Now, years later, Beatle George Harrison would reflect on that song and say, basically, that song was an advert for God because God is love. And that's what we want to get to this morning or afternoon. We want to, to get to the idea of what does it mean for us to relate with a God who is love and how did Jesus talk about that? So for, for our scriptures this morning, um, I'd like for you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, whether you flip pages or swipe on your device, however you get to the scriptures, go to Matthew 22. And as always, whenever we kind of parachute in into the middle of a story, it's good for us to kind of get our bearings and to figure out where we are in the storyline in, in the narrative at that point. And when we come into Matthew 22, the first thing we need to know is that it's Passion Week. It is in the days leading up to Jesus's trials, his crucifixion, and then ultimately his resurrection. Matthew 21, the previous chapter, records the triumphal entry. Now we're in Matthew 22, and, and as you can see in the, in the narrative, the tensions between the religious leaders and Jesus continues to accelerate, continues to grow, continues to intensify uh, until the point where they're going to arrest Jesus and, and demand his execution from the Roman governor. But here, really the animosity is the point where all they're trying to do is discredit Jesus. And it's very interesting. Mark has a parallel passage that we'll refer to a couple of times in Mark 12, but he introduces this series of events this way. He says, and they, the religious leaders, sent to him, Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, that's very clear. <laughs> this is not a fact-finding mission. This is not re religious leaders wanting to have a civil debate or discussion. This is the religious establishment trying to entrap Jesus in order to discredit him so that they can destroy his credibility as a rabbi and as a teacher. Now, as that happens, um, there's another piece of this that often goes unnoticed, and that's the fact that because the Bible was written in an Eastern culture, uh, the context is a shame-honor context. Here in the West where I live, we have more of a guilt-innocence context in the way we think, but in Eastern societies then and even many times today, um, they had a, a shame-honor uh, context. And what this meant was that either you brought honor to your family and your community and your nation, or you brought shame to them. In the West, we're more about the individual, but in Eastern cultures, it's more about the community and, and the community in which you live. And if you bring shame on that community, then it will not go well for you. So when we have a situation like this, where there's a public questioning of Jesus 
Everyone in the crowd who's watching this knows what's going on. This is a shame honor contest. And they're trying to bring shame upon Jesus to discredit him. Now, what's interesting is that when you have someone come to Jesus privately, that's not a shame honor contest. That's when they're genuinely seeking information. And I would compare this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Over the years, I've heard many times that the reason Nicodemus came by night was because he was embarrassed to come to Jesus uh, because he was a religious leader and he didn't want to be seen with Jesus. That's not really likely. What's much more likely is that he came at night because he really wanted answers to some questions. He, he wasn't coming to challenge Jesus or to in any way try to discredit him. He was coming to Jesus because he genuinely wanted answers to his genuine questions, and he knew a private audience would be the best way to accomplish that. So that's what's going on here. It's a shame-honor contest in which they're trying to trap Jesus in his words. And to do that, they create a series of tests. And each one of these has kind of a diabolical nature to it. The first test is Pharisees and Herodians come to Jesus together. Now, that's an odd pairing. If you studied any about the different groupings of people during, during first century Israel, you know that the Pharisees, in, a, in addition to being strict adherence to the law of Moses, they were also fierce nationalists. Herodians were political appointees appointed by Rome to be kind of vassal kings uh, in, that, in that country that Rome now controlled through military conquest. And so you have the nationalists together with the, the Roman um, collaborators coming together. Now, that's an odd pairing. And not surprisingly, because of their political differences, they come and ask Jesus a political question. The political question is, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And you'll remember Jesus gave the brilliant answer, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and render to God that which is God's. And, and they went away and they couldn't trap him. The second group came in the second test, and this second test was Sadducees. And we're told in the scriptures, that one of the characteristics of the beliefs of the Sadducees, who, by the way, made up most of the high priestly group, most of the high priestly group were Sadducees. And one of the characteristics of Sadducees was that they did not believe in life after death. They believed everything was wrapped up in our few years in this dusty old planet. And <clears throat> so the Sadducees, because they did not believe in the resurrection, tried to bring Jesus what they considered to be an absurd question about what happens after death. And Jesus not only challenges them, he accuses them of not even knowing the scriptures. And they were the priestly group. So, so Jesus turns the table on them. And that's when we get to the part that we want to see uh, for our time together today. And <clears throat> what Mark tells us in his account is that a young man comes to Jesus one of the scribes, the scribes were legal experts, experts in Mosaic law. And so they spent all their day trying to study the law and to understand how to live it out and so forth. And so this third person, even though it's a public setting, it doesn't seem like he's coming wanting to, to try to bring shame on Jesus. 
he seems to genuinely be wanting an answer to his question. It says in Mark 12, 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment is the most important of all would be a very natural question for a scribe to ask because the scribes were the ones who spent all their time trying to deal with the law and trying to understand and apply the law. So to know which was the greatest commandment would be really important to a scribe. Also, it was a question that was constantly being debated and discussed in that time, and for good reason. From Moses' law uh, over the centuries, the rabbis had developed a system of 613 commandments. Now think about that. 613 commandments, 240 or 248 of them were positive commandments of this is what you're supposed to do. 365 of them were negative commandments. This is what you should not do. Think about that one negative commandment for every day of the year. Uh, it would take you an entire year just to focus on one a day of the negative commandments. And that doesn't even touch the positive commandments. So with 613 commandments, how are you supposed to be able to process all that? How are you supposed to be able to manage all of that and live out that expectation? In fact, the rabbis got to the point where they recognized what a difficult challenge this was. And so they took those 613 commandments and they broke them into two groups, heavy commandments and light commandments. The heavy commandments were the really weighty significant, important ones. The light commandments, eh, they really weren't as important. So you could focus on the heavy ones. Well, by doing that, the, the religious leaders had basically set aside the significance of the law to Israel. James would write in James 2 verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point, he is guilty of all. So breaking it up into heavy and light really doesn't do you any good because if you break one, you've broken the whole thing. <clears throat> so this young scribe who comes to Jesus and says, what is the greatest commandment of all? He's asking a very important question, but it's also a little bit of a tricky question. If Jesus says, this is the only commandment that matters, then he's kind of going to be accused of setting aside or abolishing parts of the law. So he, he has a very interesting challenge ahead of him, and not surprisingly, Jesus handles it with perfect wisdom and perfect balance. <clears throat> so it says in Matthew 22, verse 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Or, in other words, all you need is love. All you need is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. All you need is love. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, <clears throat> What's interesting is in the promotional material that was sent out, it mentioned in there that one of the Greek words for love is the word agape. 
which is the highest form of love. And it's the word that's used to describe God's love for us. That is the word that's found in both places here in Jesus' statement. Both of these are, you will agape the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you shall agape your neighbor as yourself. What makes that interesting is because there are five different Greek words for love. Not all of them are found in the New Testament, but there are five different Greek words for love, which is very handy because in English, we have one word for love, and that's love. And so if I say, I love pizza and I love my wife, my wife could pretty easily get offended at that because at that point, it's hard to tell how I love her and how I love pizza and what the difference is. In Greek, you didn't have that problem because you had five different words. You had agape, which we'll talk about more. You had phileo, which is brotherly love or affection. You had storge, which is family love, kind of the love of uh, parent for child and child for parent. You had eros, which is kind of romantic love, which is most of what Valentine's Day and all that's about. And then you had epithumia, which speaks of desire and is often used to speak of sexual love. So five different Greek words for love, but the highest form of love, the one that rises above them all is agape. Now, why? Well, the reason is because agape expresses itself in sacrificing itself for the one that it loves. I heard a statement years ago when I was in Bible college, I've never forgotten it. It said, the measure of love is what you're willing to give up for it. We see that love characterized in God's love for us in that God so loved the world, agape the world, that he gave up his one and only son for us. That's how deeply God loves us. Love in agape love is measured by a willingness to sacrifice on behalf of the one loved. And so Jesus responds and says, here are the two greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. Now, for the second half of our webinar, we'll talk about that second commandment. Right now, for just a few minutes, let's focus on this first commandment and see exactly what he's talking about. First of all, one of the most important foundational kind of fundamental creed statements for ancient Israel is what's called the Shema. It, it's the Hebrew word for hear, and it's Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, what's interesting is Jesus' words here, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, come in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. So, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So what Jesus is doing is he is taking the most foundational statement in Judaism and using that as a doorway into this conversation about love. The, the righteous Jew would repeat the Shema over and over again many times during a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Now, now, when Jesus says that, and when he pulls that from their past, that was the most familiar thing they had in the law. That was their most common point of, of agreement in Judaism. 
This is what our God is like. He is one. And this is to be our response to him. We're to love him with heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, over the years, I've heard many messages on this. I've read many commentaries on this. You probably have as well. This is called the great commandment. Now, if you're a preacher or a pastor, I'm going to give you a quick little three-point outline, just three points, and you can develop this as a sermon sometime if you want. The first is the great commandment, which we have here in Matthew 22. The second is the great commitment, which Jesus calls us to in Mark chapter 8. And the great commitment is this, and if anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. That's a great commitment, especially in a culture where people knew what crosses were. They weren't jewelry or decorations. Crosses were torture devices. And when Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your own cross every day and follow me. And then the third, of course, would be the Great Commission. Where do we follow him? We follow him into all the world as we take the message of Jesus to the world, Matthew 28. Uh, so that's a little three-point outline for any of you pastors. If you want to take that and run with it, you, you feel free to do that. Um, but as we think about this, like I say, I've heard many, many sermons on this. And most of the time, we try to break down those components with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength try to break those components down. And I'm not sure that that's really the point. Uh, heart would be with all your affection. Uh, soul would be with all of who you are, your innermost being. Mind would be with your intellect. Strength would be your physicality. I was in Israel one time in Jerusalem at the Wailing Wall, where you'd see all these Hasidic Jews, these ultra-Orthodox conservative Jews, lined up against the wailing wall praying. And you could see them with their black hats and their, their forelocks of hair uh, on their faces. And they would be violently shaking like this as they were praying. And I asked our guide, I said, why are they doing that? And they said, they're loving God with all their strength. Even as they pray, they're physically engaging in prayer so that they can show that they're loving God with all their strength. Well, that's really interesting. I'm not sure that's the point of it, though. I think biblical anthropologists um, would say that in these categories, there's a lot of overlapping. They're not as distinct as we might want them to be. The whole point that Jesus is trying to make is that we are to love God with everything that we are. Everything that we are is to be devoted to him. Everything that we are, everything that we do, Everything that we say is to be an expression of how we agape him with everything that we are and with everything that he's given to us. That is a great challenge. That is a great challenge because if you're like me, there are a whole lot of times when loving God is not the first priority in my mind. There are other things that might in a particular moment feel more important. Now, in my mind, I know they're not more important, but in that moment, they might feel like they're more important. And, and when Jesus challenges us to love the Lord our God, to, to love with this self-sacrificing love of agape love, to love God like that with everything that we are, 
is the highest calling there could be. And that's what makes this the great and first commandment, the first commandment. In fact, Jesus is going to say on these two commandments, depend or suspend all the law and the prophets, all the law and the prophets, everything in Judaism hangs off of these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all you are. And as we'll see in part two, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what Jesus just did by taking the, the statement from the Shema, the hero Israel, love the Lord your God, and then adding to it, love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus is doing is representing the two halves of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. So the first half of the commandments, one through five, is about how we respond to and, and relate to God. The second half of the commandments is about how we relate to one another as human beings. The whole law and prophets is suspended on these two ideas. Love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's why all you need is love, because everything in Judaism, uh, Jesus was saying, is expressed in these two ideas, how you interact with and relate to God and how you interact and relate to one another. And we're going to take a short little break for a few minutes, give you a chance to refresh your coffee or your lemonade or whatever it is you might be drinking today. And then we'll come back with part two and see what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Okay, well, welcome back. And we'll pick up now with the second of the great commandments or the second half of the greatest commandment, uh, if you wanted to put it that way. And this is where Jesus says, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what Jesus has just done is he's taken Leviticus 19, 18, and he's added it to the Shema. And he's actually placing it on the same level as loving God. Loving God and loving neighbor are placed on the same level. And then he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Now, there are a lot of things about this that are very interesting and even a little mysterious, but more than anything else, they are really, really challenging. And um, I want us to think about what it means to love your neighbor, because this is such a profoundly important idea to Jesus that this idea of love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself uh, comes up in Luke chapter 10. Uh, and when it comes up in Luke chapter 10, it is this very issue that prompts Jesus to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because if you'll remember, the person who's questioning Jesus there says, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And in other words, uh, in, in Judaistic thinking in the first century, you could decide who you were going to carve out and who you were going to keep in. And so for the basic kind of grassroots Jewish person, his neighbor was his fellow Jew. For the religious leaders, it was their fellow religious leader. They didn't even consider the common people their neighbors, which is why Jesus really went after the religious leaders for the way they abused the, the common people. You tie great burdens upon their backs and you won't even lift a finger to help them. Uh, why? Because they didn't view them as neighbors. And um, um, Jesus kind of takes all that and blows it up in the story of the Good Samaritan 
by reminding us that it's not about who our neighbor is, it is who are we willing to be a neighbor to. That's the point of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus tells that story to illustrate what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's interesting about this is that Jesus says on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Paul takes it one step further. He says, love your neighbors yourself. Do that and you fulfill the whole law. The whole law. That's how important this is. So, so think about the challenge of loving your neighbor as yourself. And again, the word is agape, which speaks of self-sacrificing love. Why is that so important? Well, it's so important because we are supposed to be representatives and ambassadors of God, and God is love. And so we are to love as an expression of our relationship with him. Now, what's important to keep in mind is that we don't crank this love out out of our own energy. We don't make it and force it and, and, and make it as a human effort type of thing. The love that this is talking about, the love that comes out in loving our neighbor as ourself is a direct response to our love for God and his love for us so that our love that we express to others flows out of his love to us. We don't have to manufacture it on our own. And that's why Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's the Holy Spirit that produces love within us. And as the Holy Spirit produces love within us, that overflows into the lives of those that we contact, including our neighbors. So think about not so much, I've got to work this up and I've got to make this happen, but think about it more in terms of this is what the Holy Spirit does through me. I become kind of a, a channel of his love uh, that gets expressed to other people through my life. And this is also the, the core of obedience. When we obey God, we don't obey God because we're afraid he's going to crush us like a bug if we don't. We obey God because we love him and he loves us. And our obedience is a response of love to him. And that includes loving one another. So, so let's look at this and, and see what happens because how this scribe responds is critically important to this whole story because we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians and they came and when Jesus answered their question, they kind of slinked away and kind of tried to escape because they had been embarrassed. When the Sadducees came, Jesus kind of, put them in their place, if you will, and they kind of snuck away as well. This scribe who comes and asks Jesus for the greatest commandment, when he hears, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and your neighbors yourself, Mark chapter 12, the parallel passage for this, gives us his response. And because the scribes were kind of under the Pharisees, I guarantee you, that when he made this response, all the Pharisees in the crowd got really nervous because he was getting dangerously close to, to moving away from what they were all about and instead moving toward what Jesus was all about. So notice he says in Mark 12, verse 32 through 34, and the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that God is one and there's no other besides him. 
and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding and all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Did you hear what he said? The whole Judaistic system was built on the law and the sacrifices, the law which told us what we had to do, all 613 commandments, and the sacrifices which were offered when people failed to keep those commandments. So the sacrificial system was the way to respond to failing to keep the law. And now this scribe hearing Jesus makes this what would have seemed to the people of his day an outrageous statement. To love the Lord with all you are and to love your neighbors yourself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's more important than the whole sacrificial system. And, and when Jesus saw that the scribe answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Why? Because he was moving closer into Jesus's sphere of influence, but also moving into agreement with what Jesus had been teaching. He was edging his way away from the legalism of the Pharisees and the demands of the law and the demands of the sacrificial system to what the heart of God really wanted all along. Remember, Jesus talked about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. The letter of the law might be, you shall not make any graven images of God, and that's important. But the spirit of the Lord is, you don't do that because you love him. See, because you love God, the, the letter of the law might be thou shalt not commit murder, but the spirit behind it is you don't kill another person because we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what we're called to be and to do. And so love is at the heart of everything and love is at the heart of who God is and what God wants to produce in us to be. That's why the fruit of the spirit with these nine manifestations of the Spirit's work in us. The first of those is love. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love, because that's what resonates with the heart of God, who loves us so much that he gave his one and only son for us, and we respond to that love by loving him and loving our neighbors. So, when, when this young man gave that answer, and Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. It says in Mark 12, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I imagine that's right, because he had answers, and he had answers that were not only unexpected, but were challenging in their own way. And remember, in that crowd there, uh, as Jesus is being challenged by these different religious leaders, not only are there the religious leaders, not only are there the crowds who have gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, but they're also Jesus's disciples. One of them was John. And just so that we understand that John heard everything that Jesus said, he gave his own twist to it in his first letter when he wrote 1 John 3, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And then 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God 
and knows God. Paul wasn't there when Jesus was doing this teaching, but in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, he also sums up the fact that all of the law is wrapped up in how we love, how we love God, how we love others, how we love God, how we love our neighbor. And in those things, we not only express and live out God's love to this world, we also are being obedient to God by loving him as he deserves and loving others as he has called us to do. So as we think about all you need is love, this young scribe had it right. Loving God and loving others is more important than all the sacrifices and offerings. Huge statement. We come to that in a different era where we don't have those uh, offerings and sacrifices in that way, but we could talk about our religious service. We could talk about the things we do for God, whether it's me doing teaching or you doing Bible study or leading a group or pastoring a church or whatever it might be that we do. Are we doing that motivated and driven by God's love for us and for those we're trying to share with? Or are we doing it because we want people to be impressed by what we do? See, that was the thing with the sacrifices. You had little sacrifices, and then you had, depending upon what you could afford, you had bigger sacrifices all the way up to a bull. Um, if you remember when the, feast, when the um, ceremony of dedication for the baby Jesus happened in Luke 2, when that took place, they offered two turtle doves. That was the smallest offering you could give. That was the smallest acceptable offering that there was. And uh, that shows that Mary and Joseph were probably rather poor. Uh, but other people with a lot of money, they could offer huge things and make a big show out of it and, and, and say, check me out. Look at what I'm doing for God. When what God wants us to do is live out of love so that we people can see, look what God has done for me. Look at how God has shown his love to me. That's what matters the most. So when we talk about loving God and loving others, this is the greatest command. All of the law and the prophets are suspended on these two monumental ideas. And believe me when I tell you, living this life is not easy. It's a great challenge because it demands of us more than we are sometimes willing to give. But at the same time, it calls us to an expression of relationship with God that is born out of his own heart and his own love for us. So let's have a word of prayer together, and then we'll see uh, if there are any questions that have come in, okay? Father, um, sometimes when I think about a subject like this, I feel like Peter, who, when Jesus challenged him, uh, three times, Peter, do you love me? He finally said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And, and it's almost as if he's saying, Lord, you know, I'm loving you the best I know how. I'm loving you the best I can. It may not be everything it should be. It may not be perfect. It may not be uh, all that I want it to be or that you deserve. But Lord, you know my heart and you know that I want to love you with my whole heart. So help me to do that today and help your love for me 
to fuel love for others so that I might treat them as those who are made in your image and who are objects of your love, love that loved so much that you were able to give your one and only son as an expression of that great and deep love. Lord, stir your love within us. May your Holy Spirit create within us that fruit of the Spirit, which truly is love. Love for you, love for one another, love for neighbor, and even as Jesus said, love for our enemies. Help us, Father, to be not only recipients of your love, but sharers of it as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sir, for this beautiful teaching. It is always a great honor listening to you. I pray God will continue to bless you more with his knowledge and wisdom of his word. In Jesus' name. Uh, so we're at the uh, question and answer section now. Uh, like we said earlier, if uh, you have any question, you can drop it in the Q&A box. It is found at the bottom of your screen. And if you would like to ask your question verbally, you can click on the raise hand icon and I will unmute you to speak. Uh, to start off, I have a question here. It's from an anonymous attendee. And he or she is asking that, as a devoted Christian, how can you avoid an immediate neighbor who doesn't like you because of what you have and keeps irritating you? Yeah, I think we've all, we all have or have had neighbors like that at one point or another. Um, I think the first thing to keep in mind is that Jesus did not say, and love your lovable neighbors. Uh, it's easy to love neighbors who are lovable. Neighbors who are difficult make it a bigger challenge. But I think the first thing to keep in mind is to remember that God loves us and we're not always lovable either. And if, if God can love us with that kind of love, then we can learn how to love others, even the ones who irritate us or, or, or cause us to be frustrated or different things. And I think maybe the, the key behind it uh, to, to the person who submitted this question, I think maybe the key behind it is to remember that agape love is all wrapped up in the idea of self-sacrifice. So there are times when we show love by setting aside our rights or our demands for the needs or benefits or welfare of another. And so one of the ways that you can uh, show love to this person is not to avoid uh, the person, but by finding how can I serve them? What are some needs that they have that perhaps I can express Christ's love by serving them in that point of need? And, um, you know, it, it could be any variety of things uh, that they might need help with. Maybe um, uh, one of the reasons that they're so irritating is because they have a difficult situation within their home. And when they walk out the door, they carry all of that baggage with them. And um, I think to try to understand what are the challenges that they face and what are the difficulties that they face, and then to ask, what could I do to show love to them and to help them in that situation might be one way to, to express your love for Christ 
by loving them in looking for ways to serve them. There's a, there's a comment from Stephen Inberry, yeah, saying, he's asking that how about organizing a meeting physically of all these lovely brethren who are friends of this great ministry and enjoy God's diversity as we get to learn and experience different cultures as well as how they got to know about our deliberate ministries and proposing that we can start with Africa. I guess my vice president will probably maybe talk about that later. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Yemi. Let me just quickly say something about Steven's comment. Um, right now, because of the challenges of COVID-19, we cannot promise um, having a physical um, meeting that would bring everybody from the Africa region together. And you know, the logistics of doing that also is not easy. Um, but what we normally do is that in each of the countries where we have offices in South Africa, Kenya, and Nigeria, we normally have what we call meet the readers. So each of these countries organize meetings where they invite all of their readers or as many as can come to a particular location to discuss some of the things that you have highlighted here and also to tell you a bit more of current developments in the ministry as well as some of the projects that we have running. So by the grace of God, um, we couldn't do that at all of 2020 and 2021 because of COVID. Um, but by the grace of God, now that um, COVID is abating, we'll look at having meet the readers meetings in various locations uh, as time goes on and as the situation permits. So watch out for those information in your respective countries. For the countries where we do not directly have offices, um, the countries of the country office that serves those region um, will reach out with information and if it is feasible, we can have such meetings in other locations as well. But thank you very much for your comment. We'll keep it in mind and see how the Lord will enable us to work on it going forward in the days ahead. Thank you, Stephen. All right. Thank you, sir. Uzo Amakachima, you can unmute yourself to ask a question or make a comment. And good afternoon everybody sorry i'm That's speaking i'm even though i'm in nigeria and i'm visiting in us so i'm speaking from us this morning please my question is i have um, someone in my church we attend the same church i honestly don't have you know i mean know at what point it's not somebody i am very close to in the sense that we interact you know um, that much but um, I don't know what happened somewhere along the line. I just noticed she sees me and she doesn't want to greet me. Um, the husband used to be in, in the Bible study group with me. We used to be a Bible study member. Then he stopped coming. I don't know why. And then um, I see her and I greet her and she doesn't respond. You know, she just, it kind of snubs me. And it, each time I see her, it pains my heart because we receive Holy Communion from the same communion. We worship in the same church. 
And I keep wondering, at if, at, after some time, I, you know, I just see her and I pass. But honestly, I don't pass because I want to retaliate. But because it pains, you know, each time it pains me in my heart that what have I done to this woman? If there's anything, I don't know. So I'm just wondering, I've never really approached her to say, but I just try to reach out to greet and to, you know, and she answers me like that, you know, without um, paying attention. So I don't know what I should do because it's something that keeps bothering me. Yeah, that's, that's where we live, isn't it? I mean, that's real life stuff. And, um, I had a very similar situation to what you described. It was in the first church that I pastored. And um, I noticed that there was a woman in the church who, here in the States, we would say, she was giving me the cold shoulder. Mm. Uh, and it was very similar to what you're describing. She would ignore me. She wouldn't interact with me. She wouldn't speak with me. If I started to, to walk in her general direction, she would turn and go someplace else. And, and I noticed this, and one day I was reading in the Gospels, and I read where Jesus said, if you come to give your offering, and you remember that your brother has something against you, go to your brother and make it right. And so I decided, okay, the next time I see her, whether it's at church or in the grocery store or whatever, I'm just going to go and talk to her, whether she wants to talk to me or not. And so I just went to her the next Sunday morning before church. I went to her and I said, Nancy, it seems to me for a few weeks now that you've been kind of giving me the cold shoulder and you're just not, not that kind of person. So I'm wondering, what have I done to offend you, to cause you to react to me this way? Because whatever I've done, I didn't mean to do it. And I want to apologize and make it right. And she immediately just, boom, she just let me know exactly what had offended her and what had bothered her. I asked her forgiveness. She forgave me and our relationship was restored again. I think sometimes we get these very awkward, uncomfortable situations and our natural instinct is, is to want to avoid that confrontation, to want to avoid that uncomfortableness. But Jesus says, if we know that they're upset with us, we have a responsibility to go to them and to do everything in our power to make it right. Now, when I went to her, I didn't know that she was going to respond the way she did. I mean, for all I know, she might have just turned around and walked right away again, but she didn't. And it gave us a chance to restore the relationship. So all you can do is pray about it and say, Lord, give me a humble heart. Help me to hear what, if anything, I've done wrong and help me to, to humble myself by seeking forgiveness, even if I don't know what I did or how I did it. And, uh, and I think that kind of humility can put us in a position to where people will be more open to us and willing to listen. Thank you, Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you, sir. Okay, I've got some questions here. I have a question from Ola Likon Ogunbaki, and he's asking that does a believer, does a believer's state of mind affect his ability to love sacrificially? I think everything about us affects our ability to love sacrificially. Um, 
if our state of mind is filled filled with worry and concern and fear about certain things in our own life, we're going to be so concerned with our own life and our own situation that we're not going to be as prepared or capable to love others uh, sacrificially. I think, I think even in times when our physical well-being is not good, it can make it difficult to, to love others because we're so wrapped up in our own situation. And I think at that point, all we can do is ask the Lord through the Holy Spirit to love through us because in those moments, um, we're not capable of, of loving the way we should in our own strength. Um, but I, I think, yes, uh, it does affect our ability to do that. Okay, thank you, sir. Uh, I have another question here from Lynette to Kilo. Uh, Lynette is asking that, can, can you share practical ways to love someone who is dearly toxic? Is there Bible context for distancing yourself from such, from, from, is there bi biblical context for distancing yourself from them? Hmm. Um, yes, but it has to be done very, very carefully. Um, if you'll remember in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus gave um, the process for discipline in the church, and the last thing he said was, you know, if they still don't respond, you put them out of the church. And, and I think what works in a church context can work in a personal context, but it really is the court of last resort. It's, it's the very last option. And it's not one, like we were saying a minute ago, I think our natural inclination is to want to avoid the situation and to avoid the person. But that won't solve the problem. I think, I think um, distancing yourself from that toxic person really should be an absolute last resort. And um, we should try everything we can in the meantime to uh, try to repair the broken relationship. And by the way, and, and maybe someone from our office can put up a link to it, but we have a discovery series booklet on our, our Daily Bread Ministries website called What Can I Do With a Broken Relationship? And, uh, and that might give you some extended material on what the Bible has to say about difficult people and, and what we can do to try to repair those things that have been broken. So I would, I would encourage you to, to get on and you can download that booklet at no cost or obligation. You can just print it right off and, and have it uh, to look at. That's what, what do you do with a broken relationship? Uh, I think is the name of it. Okay. Okay, sir. Um, Esther is asking a question here yeah, that in the current economic and social context, security issues on our continent, uh, what are some of the low hanging activities and strategies we can adopt to counter the cynicism that Christianity attracts? Okay. Um, it's very difficult. Um, uh, as, as Festus was saying earlier, even just being able to meet uh, in the same physical space together has become very difficult with the COVID and all these different things. And I know there are security issues 
uh, not just there uh, where y'all are, but also all around the world. I mean, we see what's happening in the Ukraine and the church that I pastored in Michigan for 11 years sent work teams to the Ukraine for 15 years, building church buildings for congregations there. And now those people are, are in the middle of a war that they didn't ask for. And so there are always going to be these problems and challenges that we have to deal with. And I don't think that there's an easy, we do this, we do this, then we do this. I think what we need to do is pray for wisdom to know how best to respond uh, to those things. Um, I think we need to ask God to help us to know how best to express his love, even in difficult situations. And keep in mind that when Jesus was saying the things that he was saying uh, in Matthew 22, they were in a very difficult time where they were surrounded by Roman soldiers who were occupying the nation as a military conquering force. And there were all kinds of security issues there as well. But with God's wisdom, I think we can discover ways together and individually that we can express the kind of love that, that shows God's love and reaches out to others, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. We just need to rely on his wisdom instead of maybe on our own ingenuity. All right, thank you, sir. Um, Shola Banigo is making the contribution here. And Shola says, the kind of love that God is calling us to show to him and to others is only possible as we trust him to manifest that love through us. It calls for a total dependence upon him. And there's a question there also from Yusuf. Yusuf is asking that, how can Christian service to others be generated only by the godly kind of love within the context of humility and not by religious self-projection? Well, I think most of all, just by remembering it's not about us, it's about God. Um, we don't love others or we should not love others to, um, to get people to notice us or to, to make us the issue. We, we try to show God's love to others in order that people will be drawn to him. And I think as long as we make him the main focus and the priority, his love can manifest itself through us and and uh, can be shown in that way. So I, I think just keeping our, our eyes on the fact that the most important thing is for them to see God's love. And our love is just a vehicle to help them do that. It's not about them necessarily paying attention to us, which is what I'm taking from the term religious self-projection. It's not about them um, necessarily focusing on us. It's about directing their attention to God himself. Okay, sir. Yeah, the, the last question I have is from Kigwe Godfrey. And Godfrey is asking that, um,
Now, in your Christian journey, how have you been able to grow in your journey or work for God? He's asking a direct question from you. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's good that the question expresses the fact that we are on a journey. Um, and um, it's more about what we are becoming in Christ uh, than what we are at any particular moment. We are all works in progress and um, God is in the midst of shaping and molding us. And I think if I could kind of give three very different components to this, one is obviously uh, spending time in the scriptures because it's through the scriptures that we know God and it's hard to love someone that you don't know. So spending time in the scriptures gets us to know God better and more personally and more intimately. And that enables us uh, to love him better because we know him better. Um, and I think a second thing that I would say is in addition to um, spending time in the scriptures, I think allowing ourselves to be mentored by other Christians who are further along in their journey than we are in ours so that we have an example and a model of someone who, um, who has been in relationship with God longer than we have, and we can learn from them. And then I think, again, by um, allowing God to do his work in our hearts and lives, um, you know, we know that God wants to make us into the image of his son because Romans 8.29 says that that's what we're predestined for, to be molded and shaped into the image of Christ in our lives. And sometimes in order to accomplish that work, God has to bring us trials and challenges. And so um, to allow him to do that work instead of resisting it is another way of expressing our love to him because the instruments that God chooses to use sometimes to form Christ in us are not always the easiest or the most pleasant things. Letting him do that shows that we love him and we trust him. So those would be just a few ideas of, of what I've tried to learn along the way. I'm not going to say I've learned them fully or perfectly, but those are lessons I've tried to learn along the way. And just as an example of that, a more specific one um, that has to do with the scriptures, a number of years ago, um, I was kind of in a really busy season in my journey with the Lord, and I was involved in a lot of ministry stuff. I was doing a lot of traveling, a lot of teaching, a lot of writing, and it just seemed like I was busy all the time, and I could kind of sense that my heart was um, kind of growing cold toward the Lord, and so I decided what I was going to do is I was just going to immerse myself in the Gospels, and, and I started reading through the Gospels. You know, in the, th in the four Gospels together, you have a total of 89 chapters. So if you read three chapters a day, you can read through all four Gospels in a month. And I just did that over and over and over again and just kind of saturated myself with what the Bible tells us about Jesus. And I felt that love for him being rekindled in a very significant way. So just randomly reading scripture in general, that may be okay. But for me, 
I just kind of wanted to immerse myself in Jesus, if you will. And so I just, for months and months and months, just read through the Gospels over and over and over again. And I'm still reading through the Gospels. Uh, I'm just doing that in a, in a more extended way as opposed to the three chapters a day. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, the last question I have is from Abed Nigu, and he's asking that you should kindly elaborate on the five types of love a bit and mm. how best we can express sin. Well, uh, those five kinds of love, again, all of them aren't mentioned in the New Testament. Um, and so, um, you know, that doesn't mean that they aren't valid types of love. It just means that they're not what the Bible wants us to necessarily focus on. Uh, the ones that are most often talked about in the scriptures are agape love, which is, again, that self-sacrificial love uh, that is the highest form of love. And um, again, we know what self-sacrifice means. We don't necessarily like it, uh, but we know what it means. And I think of the, the, the time when Jesus... I was at the temple and the wealthy people came in and the trumpets blew so everybody could watch them put their large amounts of money into the offering because they, they wanted people to be impressed with how much they were giving. And then you had the poor widow with her two little copper coins that weren't worth very much at all. And she put those in the offering and Jesus said, she has given more than anyone else because you can't give more than everything you have. And she gave all that she has. Um, and, and that's a level of self-sacrifice that kind of makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And yet, um, it's, it's the kind of self-sacrifice that Jesus gave for us. He who was rich became poor on our behalf. And so I think uh, how we express agape, first of all, begins by looking to understand where a person's point of need might be and see if there is a way that we could sacrificially help them. When it comes to phileo, which is friendship kind of love or more commonly called brotherly love, I think a lot of that has to do with just spending time together and doing life together because that's what brothers do. Brothers do life together. I've got three brothers. My wife and I have four sons in addition to one daughter. And, and we get really excited when we hear that our sons have been online talking together. They lived in different parts of the United States. But when we find out that they've been doing stuff together on a regular basis, that's really encouraging to us because that's how brothers love one another. Um, Storge, which is family love, I think has a lot to do with honor and respect, how we honor and respect each other within family. And then when it comes to epithumia, which is sexual love, that's expressed in marriage between a husband and a wife. And uh, uh, eros, which is romantic love, um, that can be expressed in a variety of ways. Uh, maybe the best thing I've ever seen on that is Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, um, because there he talks about five ways that we experience love. What he presents is that 
each of us has a love language. Some of us, it's acts of service. Some of it's giving gifts. Some of it's physical touch. Each one of us has a different love language and we express love differently and we experience love differently. And what happens, especially in our marriages, is oftentimes we marry people with a different love language than we do. And so if we keep expressing love to them in our love language, they might not really respond the way we want them to because they have a different love language. We have to become bilingual in a sense and, and learn how to express love um, to our spouse in their language as they learn to express love to us in our language. And that takes some self-sacrifice because now is about making them more important than us um, because we're willing to sacrifice to learn their language and try and communicate with them in it. So again, Gary Chapman's book, and it's available on Amazon and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the five love languages, I think, is really an important uh, book on that subject. All right. Thank you so much, sir. Um, I'm going to um, hand over now to my regional editor, Ishaya Inua, for the closing remark and prayer. Ishaya? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amy, for anchoring this. And Bill, thank you. Bill, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, this uh, teaching on love. No, Truly appreciate uh, our world is in need of love more than ever before. And there is no better time to talk or to speak about love than now. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we come to you with our hearts full of gratitude for your many blessings to us. We thank you for your word that has come to us. Thank you for all the people that you've gathered and have listened and have heard. I pray, Lord, that you'll cause the revelation of your word to come deep down into our spirit, into our soul, so that we will make use of it. Especially in these days that our world is in need of love. Help us to be uh, the Jesus that many will see and feel the embrace of your love and feel the warmth of your love. I just pray, Lord, that you'll use us to bring healing in this world that is going through a lot of pains. Thank you. Please replenish uh, Bill's strength and uh, bless him and keep him so that we continue to receive of you from him. To you be the glory and the praise. And I ask for your blessings upon all of the participants. And I ask, Lord, that uh, you will keep us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Ishaya. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, everyone that has been a part of today's webinar. We are truly grateful that you could make it. Please watch out for our next invitation to our next uh, webinar. And until then, I want to wish you God's blessings.